I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before we start, a very quick program note. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving folks. Just search for the show's name. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line to tell us what you like or hate on the show at theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. On the other hand, we don't have to look far to find the dramatic effects that the Satanic Panic had on real people. For example, we can turn to Justin Sledge himself. This happened to me. I was a victim of the panic. And what happened in a nutshell was that a very troubled young man at my high school murdered his mother and came to school and proceeded to hand me a a packet of information, which turned out to be his will and a kind of quote-unquote manifesto. And he proceeded to murder his ex-girlfriend and another young woman and and shoot into the crowd. This is one of the really early school shootings. This is two years before Columbine. And it's interesting because you look at his initial confession film that day, there's no mention of devil worship or Satanism or witchcraft or anything like that. And then slowly throughout the course of the next week, we all over town were hearing about Satanism constantly, that it was a satanic thing that did this. And you know, they found this in the woods, and it was all this stuff. And all of a sudden, me and several other young men, about a half a dozen young men, were all arrested. And we were accused of being part of a satanic conspiracy that, that motivated uh, this young man to do these horrible crimes. And like in many cases, McMartin case and virtually all other cases uh, that were the result of these uh, panic arrests, what ends up happening is that once you get into court, you have to provide evidence. Courts work on evidence. You, you have to actually show that people have done things. And one after the other charges are dropped, they're reduced. The same happens to me after about a year and a half of being under suspicion of having been a member of a satanic cult. As the actual evidence, or lack of evidence, I should say, flows in, it became increasingly clear that there was no satanic cult, that some of the guys that I was arrested with, I didn't even know. So this was a case where, you know, the panic really had a horrifying impact on my life. It's not just that it affected me. I spent 60 days in jail accused of things I never had done. I had to go through the trauma of experiencing a school shooting and then basically be blamed for having been part of it, which is really horrifying. I kicked out of school, wasn't allowed to return to school anywhere, basically. I had a huge impact on my life in terms of post-traumatic stress and uh, just social relationships that were fractured. And the families of the victims of all this were told by the police and by civic leaders that a satanic cult had murdered their children. And then 
slowly to have watched that unravel and it'd be clear that that never happened. I, I, I can only imagine the trauma of having lost a child. I can't even imagine it. But then being told that a satanic conspiracy had done it and then to watch that just, just disappear. Police never issued an explanation. They never issued a, an apology. They never issued a what in the world happened. They just quietly swept it under the rug and they were done with it. In these conspiracy theories, I know that they can be fun to listen to or read about. They can be interesting. You know, I used to love sitting up late at night listening to Art Bell go on and on about shadow people or whatever. But there's a real dark side to this. And the real dark side is this the panic ruined people's lives. It crushed people. I can only imagine childcare workers, people who take care of kids, who love children, who really want to make the kids they take care of the best life they can have, only be accused of abusing them in the most horrifying ways, being drugged through the legal system. And then on the other side of it, they're acquitted because there's no evidence for any of this. There's no tunnels beneath these buildings or whatever. They're acquitted, but they'll never get out of the shadow of it. They'll never really work again in the industry. They'll never be the same ever again. There's a big part of what motivates me when I do the work of Esoterica or when I make episodes about the witch hunts or make episodes about these kinds of things. I do it because I really do believe that we're not in the clear of these kinds of things causing enormous social harm. And having been harmed by one of these conspiracy theories, it is a weird comfort to realize like, oh, there is a method to this madness. You can go back to the Middle Ages. You can go back to the foundations of Judaism and anti-Semitism and other kinds of things and go, oh, there is a reason why this happens. There's a reason why it looks the way that it looks. There's a reason why we were accused of the kinds of things we were accused of. And that is, I mean, it's cold comfort, but it's some comfort <laughs> that there is a, an underlying logic to it all. The shooting there at Pearl High School and the panic that followed it, it really was a, a, a terrifying thing to be arrested and put on TV and people say that you're part of a satanic cult. And the aftermath of it, nothing. The media coverage always followed the same pattern. Enormous media coverage of the accusations and of the trial, no coverage of the acquittals virtually, and then virtually no follow-up footage. I was 16 at the time. In some ways, I fit the bill of the kind of kid you would imagine getting accused of this kind of stuff. Like I played Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid. You know, I listened to, I don't know, Nine Inch Nails or something, right? I was like into like grunge music, which I guess was transgressive in Pearl, Mississippi in the 90s. But I was also really interested in alchemy. So I'd be printing off alchemical tracks on the library computer to take home and translate in my Latin class because, you know, I was taking Latin and these are cool things I could practice my Latin with. But I wasn't like a goth. I didn't dress that way. There was a goth subculture at school who I'm sure got all kinds of hell in the midst of all this, but I wasn't part of like the goth culture. One of my best friends was actually one of the head cheerleaders for the school. I don't remember being picked on. I don't think I remember being bullied that much, although there was a lot of bullying that happened at that school, like every school in the 90s, I guess. But I was relatively well-known, well-liked. I don't think that I was especially weird or whatever. At the time, I'd, I'd actually just recently learned that my like ancestors were Jewish, and so I was at the synagogue, like learning Hebrew and experimenting with what Jewish identity meant to me by like you know wearing a yarmulke or learning to read the Bible in Hebrew. And like every sixteen-year-old, you go through a bunch of weird stuff, and you're trying to sort yourself out. And so I'm sure that didn't help. Some of these interviews the police had, they had with children, sixteen, fifteen-year-old kids with no parents there, with no attorneys there. You can see the leading questions they would ask these young people, like, you know, how long did you know that he was a devil worshiper? You begin to see the same kind of interrogational techniques that were developed by the Inquisition, where no matter what answer you give, you're always wrong. Either you're lying or you're in on it, right? And this would be the insinuation. And as soon as that, it was like, all right, you need to start naming names. And 
looking at some of the early interviews that the police did, people began to just to do this. And it's interesting to watch like, oh, yeah, I've seen this dynamic play itself out before. Eventually, the, all the charges were dropped. In fact, what ended up happening was the grand jury reconvened. Uh, this had gone on so long that a, a new grand jury would have to be reconvened to indict everyone again because you have due process in this country. One of the things that was introduced was the actual young man who had done the actual murders telling the grand jury that I had nothing to do with it. He had no idea what in the world I was being arrested for. And they had had this evidence since basically the very beginning. And at that point, the grand jury is like, yeah, we're not indicting this guy. But, it, you know, the, for the true believers, right, that's just more evidence that how deeply brainwashed he was by the cult. It's, uh, there's just no way out. Justin's story is, of course, unique. But just because Debbie Nathan wasn't actually falsely accused and arrested doesn't mean she didn't suffer consequences both then and now. I have had things happen to me now that are much scarier from the QAnon type people that are a lot scarier than what happened to me back then. And back then I thought it was scary. So back then, the assistant DA in the El Paso case left me messages on my answering machine saying, you are one of the molesters. She had been involved with cases here where there were allegations that the DA's office had put cocaine in its political opponent's car trunks, and people told me you need to be really careful. On another one, a New Jersey case that I did for the Village Voice, the parents in New Jersey were then organized in a national group called Believe the Children, and the parents in the case in El Paso were members of Believe the Children. And one day I had the police at my door saying that they had received a complaint of unattended children at my house. It really freaked me out. I mean, they saw that I was with my kids and they were very nice and they left. But then I got a hold of the next door neighbor, right, that, that lawyer, and I said, I'm really scared because they're police who believe this stuff. And if they believe it in El Paso, what if they think that I was having a ritual in the basement and the kids were upstairs unattended, but then there's a tripwire in the street that the Satanists have some magic powers or something that when the police come, they know. I mean, I was really freaking out because I had seen people in El Paso who had just stood up for their neighbors who'd been accused, who had ended up being accused themselves by the children. It was very much like the Salem witch trials. So he told me, oh, well, the reason why they didn't accuse you of abuse, of actual physical or sexual abuse, is because in Texas, People have to, if they make a report, they have to provide their name. But probably they only accused you of neglect because you don't have to provide your name. But you know what? That was not as scary as now. Because now I have these QAnon people in town chasing me around and calling me a satanic, ritual, something, pedophile Jew. Now that's added into it. And I actually had my picture that they took off my Facebook page in the Daily Stormer. It's scarier now than it was then, because then it was people of prestige in a way. You know, they were professionals and they worked in these, these state and local agencies and they were elected officials. I mean, they were people that were going to say terrible things, but they weren't going to do anything. And now it feels like it's just people that are on board. And of course, I'm in Texas, so they all have guns. Thankfully, she informed us, some things have definitively improved since the original book was published. Since the book came out, I think it was 1995 that it came out, we had a preface list at the time which had dozens of people on the list who were still in prison. One by one, they were released on a successful appeal, and many of them were totally exonerated. 
after the book came out, we found other cases because there was never any kind of national registry for this. This was before the internet. We found other cases that were brought to us and we worked on those. And so those people have been released and exonerated. But to our knowledge, there's one case. It's the Francisco Fuster case in Miami. He is still in prison and I don't think he's ever going to get out. I just don't think there are any appealable issues. Somebody would have to pardon him. So that's the only one that we're aware of at this point. And of course, while the pendulum finally swung back against the panic, and in the minds of most of the public, the whole thing is now a cautionary tale about... With a nod to pioneering 19th century researcher Charles McKay... Extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds. There are still plenty of diehard true believers in the absolute verifiable reality of a nation or globe-spanning cabal of satanic ritual pedophiles, etc., And it's not even limited to the QAnon faithful. In the years after the McMartin trials, for example, conspiracy theorists haven't given up. Here's Ted Gunderson, former high-ranking FBI official, in fact, one of the finalists for J. Edgar Hoover's former spot at the top of the organization, who has lots to say about tunnels. In uh, April 1985, uh, authorities went to the McMartin case and looked for tunnels under the school. The children had said that they were taken into tunnels under the school. There was a chamber down there. They were sexually molested. They involved, that involved ceremonies, adults with robes, candles, chanting. Adults had no clothes on under their robes. And they were taken up into a tunnel and a triplex, a bathroom trap door of the triplex next door. They were taken out in automobiles. We're talking about two, three, four-year-old children, folks. And, and, and prostituted in the community. The authorities finally in 1987, 85, excuse me, went out and decided to look for the tunnels because they said the children were hallucinating. So the authorities didn't find anything. Well, I'll tell you what, in the spring of 1993, I heard that the property of the McMartin School had been sold from the McMartin family to the defense attorney, actually given to him. He didn't make enough off the county. His bill was only $3 million. And from there, he said he was broke and he sold it to a contractor. The contractor was going to build an office building on the space. And so I went out and contacted him. And I said, uh, dear sir, I would like to have access to that property. He said, I'll give you two weeks. I signed a contract, assumed liability. And along with some of the parents, We hired an archaeologist from UCLA, Dr. Gary Stickle, knowing full well that I'm not qualified to say there's tunnels under there even if I found them. And we began our dig. At noon, the 34th day, with the bulldozers, with their motors running, ready to knock the building down. He was going to knock the building down and then build this office building. Dr. Stickle said, you know, I can say without any question right now, there have been tunnels under the school. They were filled in. We found a nine-foot-wide subterranean entrance under the west wall of Dog Room. There were four classrooms. That was Ray Bucky's room. By the way, Virginia McMartin and Ray Bucky were tried. Virginia, uh, the grandmother, was acquitted. Ray had a hung jury. And we found these tunnels in the middle of the second trial of Ray Bucky. They could have been used to convict him. Well, okay, if that tunnel expert found what Gunderson says he found, that seems like pretty big news. But I'm assuming Gunderson is, in spite of his long experience, wrong? 
You say wrong, I say, slowly twisted during his retirement into a right-wing extremist and key conspiracy theorist for the reactionary patriot movement. Potato, potato. Here's a skeptical journalist from a recent documentary on the case explaining how the whole tunnel controversy actually played out. A group of parents hired a tunnel expert. And the tunnel expert goes because the kids had talked about there being tunnels under the vacant lot that was next to the preschool. So a tunnel expert digs up the tunnels. Digs, no, doesn't dig up. Digs up the lot. Digs tunnels into the lot. And then there's press out there And he's talking as if these tunnels were there. Ah, so probably no tunnels. Probably not. And now, of course, we deal with the question of what real-world horror the child sex trafficking and abuse mania that QAnon built on the foundation laid by the satanic panic is obscuring. It's fairly easy to find genuine problems that were ignored during the heyday of the panic. After all, Catholic priests, Boy Scout leaders, and appalling varieties of other hallowed institutions were riddled with the worst kind of abusive child-raping monsters before, after, and certainly during the panic, and yet none of these groups fell under suspicion. Yeah, come to think of it, that is a super weird thing, isn't it? It sure is. How is it that groups, who the evidence indicates, were not in fact harboring and or covering up the crimes of large numbers of child molesters, that is, daycare workers, non-conforming teenagers like Justin Sledge, etc., these groups were in the crosshairs of the panic, and yet for all the heat generated culturally during the period, none of that light shone on the actual problems that were going on at the same time. I don't think it's a stretch to say that it's at least possible that if we hadn't wasted all of our time looking into innocent daycare workers and implanting false memories in preschool kids, our collective attention might have picked up on Father McFeelup and Scoutmaster Grabby Hands a lot sooner. That's reasonable. You would say that, since I write your lines, but I leave it to our listeners to evaluate my conclusions. Regardless, this question was definitely on my mind back when I was interviewing Debbie Nathan, and so I asked her if there were any broadly accepted cultural groupthink phenomena affecting our current zeitgeist, so that my listeners and I might challenge these orthodoxies to avoid the sin of complicity in an ongoing, society-wide mistake that might eventually lead to ruined lives. Boy, did she have a doozy of a suggestion. What's interesting is to try to sit down and figure out what it is that you believe today that seems completely reasonable and credible, which is part of this. And the one that I see the most frequently is a widespread belief that there's a whole lot of sex trafficking going on. Doesn't really seem like there is. And it's connected to this hysteria. I mean, you want to have them, well, to me, what, you know, where did this satanic ritual abuse stuff lead to? It led to the idea, for example, that immigrants are trafficking their children and that they're selling them for sex in the United States. They're bringing them across the border in order to sex traffic them. That there are thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people that are being sex trafficked right now in the United States. People eat that stuff up. They watch films about it. And that's very much part of QAnon, but it goes way beyond QAnon, too. Wait, what is she talking about? Does she mean that the QAnon satanic-derived panic is distracting resources away from real efforts to prevent sex trafficking, both of children who were born in the U.S. and especially children who are undocumented? No, she's 
definitely not saying that. So, well, what is she saying? She's saying the entire phenomenon of sex trafficking, as it's normally construed, is very different than tends to be portrayed by agencies and most press reports, and that the numbers involved, especially in the U.S., are probably much, much smaller and almost certainly don't include many of the types of crimes that most people think of when they hear those words. Wait, what do you mean? I've seen season two of The Wire. What about all those poor Eastern European women who smothered to death in that can? When one of the sailors got mad, they wouldn't give him a free roll in the hay. Okay, first of all, that's a big spoiler alert party foul, Ms. Unicorn. Jeez. You've just reminded them you write all of my lines. Stop snitching, Unicorn. And relax. It's all in the game, right? And about those girls in the can, I have another question for you. What about Frank Sabatka? I'm not hearing his name in any of this. How much do you plan to abuse the goodwill of your listeners with obscure memes from The Wire during this discussion? Not too much more. But Dana, it's really not your problem. Don't make a mistake here, giving a fuck when it ain't your turn to give a fuck. Oh, Lord. To get back to the question you raised moments ago, there have indeed been a number of fictional depictions of the wholesale smuggling of both women and children into this country by major organized crime syndicates. Typically, these stories go, the women are given false promises about how their lives will be in the United States once they're smuggled in. They pay thousands of dollars to these unscrupulous smugglers and then end up not in the waitressing or hotel cleaning jobs they were promised, but rather are forced into indentured servitude, having sex for money, in a never-ending cycle from which it's impossible to escape. Yeah, that sounds about right. And there are lots of pieces of that story that are part of the real, horrific experience of people who are being exploited for their labor, both sexual and non, throughout the world. The problem is, there seems to be very little evidence that this sort of large-scale operation, based on the mass movement of women from some other country into the United States, or from the U.S. to another country, for sexual slavery, just doesn't seem to happen. Wait, what? Jesuit, surely you're overstating the case here. I hear law enforcement both in the U.S. and Europe trumpet sex trafficking stings all the time, where they rescue women from sexual servitude and lock up both the pimps and the johns who exploit them. Yeah, I know, but most of those headline busts you're talking about would, a couple of decades ago, just have been referred to as vice stings, like police going into brothels or arresting prostitutes in their johns on the street. For example, there's no evidence that women or children have ever been smuggled into the U.S. in a shipping container against their wills to be sold for sex. Never? I mean, I'm no expert, but I can't find one. Oh, there are plenty of claims that this is happening all over the place, most of them promoted by Q-friendly social media accounts. And there are, of course, horrible stories about the inhumane conditions that migrants are forced to endure by the unscrupulous coyotes who move them across borders. In the UK in 2019, for example, in a very wirish turn of events, 39 people, including children, who were economic migrants from Vietnam, were discovered dead in a shipping container on the back of a semi. But as far as US kids or women being kidnapped, loaded into containers, and sent overseas for the sexual delectation of wealthy foreigners, or for that matter, foreign kids or women being shipped from those countries to the U.S. to be victimized by our pervs, it doesn't really seem like things work that way. Oh, rumors fly all the time. And you won't be surprised to learn that many of these rumors come from the self-same QAnon and Save the Children social accounts that are constantly screaming about how Tom Hanks helped Jeffrey Epstein improve his golf swing between shots of adrenochrome and hummers from underage girls. Not that we're downplaying the crimes of Epstein, nor the very troubling ties he had with major cultural and political figures. 
But, you know, the whole Tom Hanks obsession by the Q-Nuts really rankles us. He's America's dad, goddammit. And remember, Epstein didn't have to look internationally for his prey. There were plenty of local monsters willing to find underage victims conveniently located near the scenes of his ongoing crimes. Let's try to figure out what's real and what's not here. There's a lot of literature on this subject, and Debbie helped us through the basics, but it boils down to a few pretty easy-to-understand issues. Number one, inflated statistics. Number two, mission creep. And number three, moral panic. First, the statistics. There are some truly terrifying numbers that get bandied about regarding the number of people held in what activists now often call modern slavery. This is a catch-all term that refers to anyone being held and forced to labor in any way against their wills. Estimates of the number of people worldwide in this condition vary, widely, but is almost certainly a horrifyingly large number. And we can see plenty of evidence of real-world horrors related to problems like these. Take, for example, the very true stories of South Asian workers doing forced labor in extremely dangerous conditions to build the gleaming stadiums for the recent Qatar World Cup. This summer, the bodies of scores of migrant workers in Qatar have been flown home to their families in Nepal. <laughs> Nepalese make up the highest numbers but lowest paid migrant laborers in Qatar. They're victims of a state-run sponsorship system which binds each worker to a single employer. They cannot leave their job or even the country without their employer's permission. This system Combined with the huge debts most workers owe in Nepal, leaves them trapped, especially if they find themselves with jobs and salaries very different to what they were promised. In the worst cases, this leads to forced labor, a modern form of slavery. This worker now shares a tiny room with 11 other men not far from the exclusive hotels of central Doha. But despite being cheated, he feels he cannot leave. Many migrants allege they are forced to work without pay, often for months. In the worst cases, migrants have no choice but to run away and find alternative work illegally. Part of the confusion, though, comes from the blurring of lines between victims like these, or the Uyghurs who are doing forced labor even now in Chinese re-education camps, and victims of human trafficking. See, people in the U.S. tend to get super worked up about the idea of trafficking, especially in terms of women and children but they don't have as strong a reaction to headlines talking about forced labor. So advocates, as well as headline writers in search of clicks, tend to rework already questionable estimates of coerced labor. Which is often labor imposed on citizens by government, as in the previously discussed case of Chinese Uyghurs. And most of these scenarios, with important exceptions like the Nepalese and Qatar, take place within the victims' home countries. So, like, exploitation, sure. But mostly no trafficking per se. These overestimates are then transformed into human trafficking statistics, even though the best research suggests that only a quarter of those being exploited for their labor are outside their country of origin. So they're not really being trafficked anywhere. This happens specifically because the word trafficking gets more attention from the public, conjuring images as it does of young women or children probably being exploited sexually. And it's the sexually part that brings the attention the bipartisan corporation, and the funding. Exactly. It doesn't have the additional Satan booster that the panic benefited from. But the idea of sexual exploitation of the innocent really gets people angry, much more so than common everyday labor exploitation. 
But on top of that, as we've indicated already, accurate numbers can be very hard to come by, and the biggest numbers tend to get repeated regardless of their validity. And even the numbers issued by the same organizations can swing up or down a great deal between one year and the next, even in the case of generally sober entities like government agencies. One Washington Post fact-checking article pointed out that between 2013 and 2014, the State Department noted in consecutive annual reports that 40,000 people had been identified as victims of human trafficking. That is, the number of verified victims hadn't changed between the two years, though it's worth noting that number is also probably inflated. But the big thing to notice is that the total global number of supposed trafficking victims who were unidentified went from an estimate of 27 million in 2013 to an estimate of over 20 million in 2014. So where'd those 7 million unidentified victims go? Turns out the government just went from using one vague estimate to a somewhat lower vague estimate they deemed a bit more credible between the two years. But at the time, an even more widely cited figure pinned the global figure of unidentified exploited victims at 35.4 million. A State Department official noted that the media preferred that number because it was higher. But the methodology behind all of these statistics is iffy. You can either trust us on this or dig into the literature on the subject, but suffice it to say, we couldn't find any source that made us feel these stats were at all reliable. Again, we're not saying this is not an important issue. It clearly is a humanitarian nightmare. But the version of it that most people see in their minds when they hear the term human trafficking that is, young girls being brought into or out of the U.S. for sex, just doesn't appear to be a thing. Which brings us to the second issue with this whole topic, that is, mission creep. Just like the press and advocacy groups, law enforcement agencies can tell which way the wind blows, and therefore many have been jumping on the human trafficking bandwagon, which has led to a bizarre deformation of the way we look at situations that we previously had a pretty understandable commonplace definition for. Listen as Debbie Nathan explains to us how the State Department's efforts to provide special visas for victims of sex trafficking has turned out. The State Department started a whole department, a whole special section to deal with sex trafficking and to process visas, right? They're called U visas for people coming from overseas that have been coerced into sex traffic and labor traffic. They couldn't find anyone. They had 50,000 visas. They could not find anyone. And it doesn't seem like people are afraid to come forward. And so they had to expand the definition. So the definition now, it's been expanded to anyone who's a minor. Okay, so it's not somebody who's brought in from another country. It's usually a U.S. citizen who's below the age of consent. This is how it's shaken out. They're picking up young black women below the age of 18, 16, 17, poor kids who have some kind of nasty, shitty boyfriend who's also black, who's like 21, right? And they're going out and they're making money at truck stops, right? And they're going to clubs and they're getting into clubs even though she's underage and she's making money in the clubs by being a prostitute. It's prostitution is what it is. So it's prostitution and it's underage and it's a problem, obviously, right? But it's being labeled sex trafficking. The people that are really fighting this are sex workers. Obviously, they don't approve of having people under the age of consent going out and doing sex work. It's dangerous and it's symptomatic of the fact that they need a lot of help. But to call it sex trafficking really doesn't help. Hold on. Just making sure I'm keeping up here. The State Department, responding to reports that sex trafficking of underprivileged immigrants, especially women, created a special new visa category specifically for victims of sex trafficking. 
And yet, in despite of the fact that literally millions of people are desperate to get into the United States legally, and again, that this sort of sex trafficking is allegedly a huge problem for undocumented immigrants in the United States, they can't find nearly enough victims to fill the 50K visas they've offered annually? That's exactly correct. And so instead of rethinking the resources they're expending on what appears to be a relatively minor or non-issue, that is, people imported into the country specifically for forced sex work, they're instead using those resources to reclassify admittedly awful situations involving poor adolescent American women who are prostituting themselves as a way of making money for themselves and their over-21 boyfriends as sex trafficking, in spite of the fact that these women have not been moved or forced to do this by anyone. Again, correct. And they do this so that it looks like they're doing something about the sex trafficking issue, which people continue to think is a real problem for immigrants to the U.S., even though it demonstrably isn't? You win a gold star, Dana. And yet sexual exploitation within the U.S., including domestic sex abuse, continues to be a huge problem that could use more resources. And sexual exploitation within other countries, especially in the developing world, is also a big problem which, again, could use some of those dollars currently being funneled into combating a non-problem. Exactly. What a bizarre situation. 